Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to episode four of the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, who's joining our conversation today? I was able to sit down with Todd Guckenberger. He's the executive director of Back to Back Ministries, which is doing work in Mexico and in India and in Haiti. And they're doing some very innovative, thought provoking, and they're just really thinking about all these issues um, around the world in ways that I really think everyone out there is going to learn from. So, I just encourage you to take notes on this and really engage the conversation with us in all the different ways that we're able to do that on Facebook, Twitter, via email. If you want to send us an email with questions or comments, it's at info at thinkorphan.com. And you can also go to our website, which is thinkorphan.com, where we have show notes, all the resources that Todd is uh, going to be talking about. Um, you can go there and engage it on any level that you want to. Let's get to it. Well, Todd, I'm excited for our conversation today to learn uh, about what you've been learning over the last couple decades doing this work. The first question I have for you actually is from your wife's book, Reckless Faith. And uh, the book talks about so many great stories, and I encourage everyone out there to read it. It's, it's, it's just amazing to hear how God has done incredible things that not only started the ministry, but um, has taken it to amazing places since its beginnings. But one of those stories, uh, Todd, really has to do with you and Beth and your relationship. And it started when Beth was really, seemed like at a interesting turning point of her dating relationships with different people. And she kind of created this arbitrary test where she was going to only keep dating someone if, if they were decisive. And um, what she how she describes it in the book is that when you took her out on your first date, you were sitting there at the table and the, that the waiter came and she basically said, if, if it takes the guy too long to order, I'm not going to go on a second date with him. So in that book, she says that you not only ordered for yourself quickly, but you ordered for her without even looking at the menu. So I have two questions for you, Todd. First of all, and by the way, this is putting Todd on the spot. These are bonus questions for the audience here. Um, the first question is, is Beth's story accurate? Because we all know there's two sides to the story. Beth's story is accurate. Once I dropped the restraining order to prevent her from pursuing me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We So we are on our first date and, and noteworthy. We're from Cincinnati, Ohio, where Skyline Chili is notoriously famous. And so I took her to Skyline Chili and ordered for her and I ordered my standard three cheese conies, no onions, no mustard, and a small three-way, and I ordered for her also. And so it is a very, very true story. That's I funny. actually don't remember exactly what I ordered for her, but I'm sure I did it very confidently. Well, and that was my second question for you. So you just you just took that one. Um, but I, I got to think it must have been really good if you were that confident that she was going to like it. Oh, it was excellent. Well, the, what she didn't know is maybe she was testing me, but I was testing her. So not liking Skyline Chili was a deal breaker. If she, yeah, if she didn't. So if she didn't, yeah. it was done. Yeah, I, yeah. Pre I appreciate that. I'm a foodie as well. So uh, I very much appreciate that test. So let's go, let's go back. Let's, let's backtrack a little bit. I, I had mentioned the book. I'd mentioned kind of the story of, of, of back to back ministries. Can you just share with, with the listeners kind of how you and Beth came to the point where you felt led to start the ministry and a couple things that you, you've learned over the years? 
Yeah, and just real briefly, we started it uh, really right out of college um, for the international side of back-to-back. We actually worked for back-to-back as volunteers in the states that had existed for about a year. It was a high school-based ministry, an inter-church organization. We went to the board and said, hey, we've been saving our salary, one salary for a year. We'd like to move internationally, and we want accountability. We wanted uh, the the not the resources necessarily financial, but we wanted the support system that came with a ministry and organization. And so they said yes, and we went. And really, we went because we two years before that we were on a on a mission trip that was what we would say is it was a dud mission trip. We were painting one wall from green to blue that we painted from blue to green the year before, <laughs> and and it and it kind of irked us. And so that year we got into a taxi and we said to the taxi driver and our best broken Spanish, you know, can you take us to an orphanage or orphanatorio or whatever, however we managed to communicate (laughs) without speaking a lick of Spanish. And he took us there. And the next day we showed up with some students that were with us and we served meat. And for the first time that that children's home had had meat in a long time. And we're serving these kids hamburgers and Beth is following some of the kids and they're coming three or four times in the line. And there's no way that a four-year-old can eat three or four hamburgers. And so we followed them to their dorm and literally the kids were hiding the hamburgers under their mattresses. And so we call that one of our many defining moments uh, throughout the years. We've had what we call defining moments that kind of give clarity to what he's called us to do. And so that was two years prior to when we actually launched and moved. And we knew that you know, we were both teachers. We sucked, saved one of our salaries completely and, and moved to Mexico. It was pretty simple, pretty innocent, um, but uh, God blessed it. That first year, we thought we'd have 50 people come serve with us, and because we worked, we were both worked in, worked in a Christian school, and uh, we also worked with this local youth group. And that year, 350 people came, and so it was just a just kind of a right place, right time. What God wanted for us, and how He led us to do it. Yeah, wow. And that, with that, I, I, it, it brings a question up to, to my mind that that uh, about short term trips. You know, you said you not only uh, have trips visit uh, back-to-back ministries, but you started with Beth on a mission trip, as you used to call it a dud mission trip. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk today about short-term trips. There's some people saying they're just really bad; they don't do anything good. Other people are saying no, they're the best thing ever, and we got to keep doing them like we've always done them. Um, where do you fall on that? Obviously, there's there you are an advocate for short-term trips in some capacity. And so how can we use short-term teams for good in the context of orphan care in particular? Yeah, we are, we are definitely advocates of short-term trips, but I think the most important thing that we would say is you have to be very intentional. And one of back to X core values is being relational. And so we, we really highly value the relationship part of serving short-term. The other thing that we've, we've been very intentional about is we, we have, great staff in country who are the buffer. So we're not sending teams and saying, hey, do what you want, interact with how you want. We're actually educating the teams when they come, educating the teams before they come. So we think that intentionality behind the short-term process is what makes it a home run. Uh, Clearly, it does things in the mission trip person's life. I mean, we've seen God do amazing things in people's lives, change of trajectory, decisions, but our bullseye is we want to do three things. We want each child or get to know Jesus personally. We want them to be independent, sustainable, and independent in their community. So we want the mission trip guest to join what God's doing and what we're already doing rather than saying, hey, let's run a missions camp. That's not what we do. We do mission teams, and we're very intentional about it. And how do you train the people going on the trips? I know on, on the website it talks about uh, trauma-competent care, that you're training everyone that's involved with the ministry from someone going on a trip for a little bit to everybody on and over your staff. So what does this training consist of? I know that would help a lot of people. 
Yeah, so what we with the mission trip guest, we would tend to be what we call more trauma competent aware. And so uh, in the orphan care world and, or in the vulnerable child world or vulnerable families world, the trauma is, the, is a trigger word where we would define trauma as some element of brokenness in a child, which then prevents a handful of things. So whether it, it prevents their the brain development and their learning style or et cetera. But so we want our groups, our mission trip groups to be trauma competent aware. So what are the things they can do to help support the systems and structure that, that our caregivers or the caregivers that we support and come alongside are intentionally doing to help these children heal from their trauma? And so it's things like, you know, when kids come running up and they want to hug you, we have the group group members stick their hand out to shake their hand because they're a stranger. They need right. to recognize a stranger's danger. So that's real simple. Mm-hmm. But then understanding some of the more scientific background research parts of brain development and why and and uh, being aware of those things as they go throughout the week so that they're coming alongside supporting the staff. They do develop a relationship with the child that they serve. and But we're intentional about making sure it's consistent and it's healthy. We always have a staff member with them. But we're, we're really intentional about the educational part because we want them to know. So we take an hour of every day that they're in the country and train them in the mornings. And so then we're challenging them with that training throughout the week. Is there any pre-trip training that you're doing with the churches or the leaders or anything? Not as much, not not directly with the whole entire group. Definitely with the, what we call the trip coordinators, the mm-hmm. point person. We do a lot of engaging. We will do more training with churches if they invite us. It's hard to gather people as busy as they are to do all that training up right. front. Uh, it's it's almost miserable. But we actually do a lot of the training in the first day before they even interact with a child. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, I've also so read about and, and heard just from different talks that, that I've heard at conferences about the five point child development plan that back to back has has created for the care and the holistic care of the children. Uh, can you describe that a bit for the listeners? Yeah, and I think it's worth just sharing a little bit of history uh, briefly. So we started in 1997. We landed in Monterey, Mexico, which is where our first site was. And we served kids and we knew we wanted to build into them spiritually. We met physical needs, which is some of the easiest things to do, like food, nutrition, um, and absolutely necessary. And and then we knew by by default they would get an education, and we would we would build into them academically, and we started paying for private school, et cetera. But and we went on the trajectory of doing that really well, building relationships. So we had a lot of influence in the sense of their lives. But in 2009, we did some assessment of one of our programs, which we call the Hope Program, which is a resident program. We have eight teenagers, 15 and up. Same gender. They live with a married couple, so it's very family-based, which I can explain later. But we realized about 36% of the kids weren't weren't graduating from high school. And and uh, you know, you look at Mexico, 50% of Mexicans drop out of high school. We're probably working with the 50% that would have never even gone. So that's you know, we could say 100%. But I, in my heart and head, heard 36 sorry, 80, 36% failure. And and that, w- that was crushing. So we literally would sit in meetings with, with our staff and draw on, on napkins and say, what are we doing wrong? What, did every, what does every child need? And so we just kept narrowing it down. Okay, we knew we were doing the spiritual and we were doing that fairly intentionally. We knew the physical was easiest and, and probably sometimes to a default um, over, to, over the top. And then, and then we knew academically we were helping kids be successful, but they weren't learning because they were, had some trauma or some baggage. So we came up and we said, okay, if we're going to really meet kids' needs, we've got to come around them holistically, and we, we determined five different areas, so spiritual, physical, educational, emotional, and social. So a s- simple example would be one of our students would get up, 
go to school, teacher would say, you failed, you, you need to do this paper over, and the student would quit. Well, that's not, that's that one, in yours and my world, at least most of our worlds, we would go home, in our heads, quit school, hate the teacher, but the next day we get up, do the, do the homework over, turn it in, and we have coping mechanisms. Right. Well, the students we work with didn't have the coping mechanisms. So we realized that we've got to invest in the emotional and social. So we built this model and then eventually called it a plan. So we have an individual plan for each child we serve. We have specifically to what are our goals spiritually, what are their, what are their needs spiritually, what are their goals what, physically, educationally, emotionally, and socially. And it's very intentional. It's very uphill, meaning very challenging and very difficult and very individual. But that's our filter for what we do with each child we serve. That's great. You, you touched on, too, the idea of family-style, family-based care. What does that mean in the context of the work you're doing? Because I know that you guys work with family preservation. You work with orphanages. You work with all kinds of different uh, aspects of the orphan care uh, spectrum. So uh, what does that mean in the context of your ministry? Great question. And so the, what we do is we, we partner with nationally run children's homes, or traditionally people might call them orphanages. So, Phil, if you were the director of an orphanage, we'd come along and say, hey, Phil, you're already doing this, but we want to resource you with things we can do well and let you continue to do what you do well, but work together and collaborate in what we call partnership. Then simultaneously, we do what was called the HOPE program, which is the, the program I described earlier, where we have eight students max per home. Some of them only have six, but we have educated house parents, we call them, and they live more in like a family style. So uh, in our Mexico sites, the houses are somewhere between two and 3,000 square feet each, and it's very family-based. They live together. They function as a family. Uh, they share resources. They have a long-term relationship with the house parents. So some of those key definite, definite, definitive factors of family-based care are the long-term relationship with house parents, the individual care. We do add and have additional resources. So with that five-point child development plan, we've added psychologists and social workers. So our students do group therapy. Um, the house parents actually do group therapy because you got a lot of secondary trauma happening. Um, so that family-based environment to us is a, is a process for best healing with that trauma. So then we take that to the partnerships and the orphanages. So if you are the director, we would try then to create as much of a family-based environment as possible with a, within that partnership. So making having those dorms of 20 reduced to five to seven kids per dorm. Maybe it's still in one caregiver, but we're going to work towards that family style. And then we build in kitchenettes so they can eat as a family together. They still might have a community meal once a day or once a week, but we're going to try to drive towards family-based care. Yeah. No, that's great. And who are these? Who are the parents? And how do you how do you find them? Uh, very challenging. I, and I think everybody in the orphan care world would agree, uh, especially in the global orphan care, that our bench is really, really, really thin. So we don't have people banging down our door to say, "Hey, can I work for you and serve kids with trauma?" Um, you know, there's a niche there. Wow, that must be a unique problem for you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People ask me all the time, say, oh, "What's your greatest need?" And you know, we interact with thousands of people a year. They say, "What's your greatest need?" And I think they're expecting things like, "Well, we need a pickup truck." Mm -hmm. or, we need a new building, but the reality is we need humans. Yep. And the the only change that happens, especially in an orphan's life, is a healthy human. And and that's how it happens best. And so we do we have a vetting process. We we want our house parents either to have tons of experience or and or an education. And because we want those kids in the in the homes that we serve to look up to and have something to strive to. And you can't have a necessarily a person with a third or fourth grade education helping a student and saying high school is really valuable and important. Right. So it, it, it limits us. Um, it is very challenging, but the house parents we have are incredible. Uh, and they're in, in the trenches with those kids every day. 
Are they nationals? Yeah, ninety percent of our nationals. We do have a few. I mean, obviously, if they're in a in a country that only speaks one language, they have to. That's the minimum. You know, they've got to have that baseline requirement of speaking Spanish or uh, Creole if it's in Haiti or mm-hmm. or House of if it's in Nigeria. But right now, actually, one hundred percent of our house parents are are actually nationals. And what's the commitment they understand they're making when they come in? We we have a minimum commitment of three years. Um, I mean, and that's really probably not a great standard. Um, it's just it's a really hard job. Uh, mm-hmm. We do a lot of staff care as a result of that. We're trying hard to give people breaks, uh, but the the challenge is is that they need that connection with that primary caregiver. And so in that family based environment, the primary caregiver is an X factor. And so you can't switch them out and say, well, this is your shift and this is your shift. It's so shift workers is kind of the uh, it, it can work. And if it's the only thing that can work, we will work with it. But we, we really believe that you're a parent, you're on call 24 seven right. and that's what you do. And so obviously most of our house parents have been there longer than three years. Um, but we make a minimum of three years cause we want that right. connection to happen. And what's the training you talk about the training process with the parents. So who's doing that training and, and what does that process consist of? So, and that's really, that's honestly a great question. And it's been, it's been our learning curve of less, I don't know, seems like less 15 years, but because a lot of times we'll say, okay, here's the program and, and here's the five point child development plan. And the staff will look at me and go, okay, well, how do we do it? (laughs) And so, so we, we are, we are constant learners of back to back. We're, we're, we're sucking the knowledge and the resources out of anybody that we can learn from in in child development. And one of the things we did three years ago is we, we hired a, a consultant really to do some training. And so we flew this consultant to Mazatlan or one of our Mexico sites, flew our other Mexico staff to that site and did this, what we call the trauma competent care training. And her, her name is Jane Schooler. And so we flew her to multiple places and we actually brought staff to her and where she's from in Dayton, Ohio, and did training with her from our Nigerian Indian sites. And we, at the end of that year, I made a joke with her. I said, Hey Jane, would you ever consider coming on staff with us? And she said, sure. So we snatched her up about as quick as we could. And nice. uh, so, because I always say in the orphan care world, there's three three names that are said all the time. One's Jesus, the other one's Karen Purvis, the other one's Jane Schooler. <laughs> so, so, but Jane is unassuming. She's relentlessly hopeful. And, and she and her husband, David, he's got a master's degree in counseling. And so he does a lot of our staff care and works with our staff. But she and David together do a lot of training on what we call trauma-competent care training. And so we then cascade that training out to create what we call train the trainers. And so then our staff sites all have trainers mm. or in the process of getting trainers. And so their full-time job is focused on how do we equip and resource caregivers or primary caregivers to care for kids in a trauma-competent way. Right. Wow, that's great. And and with, with this, in our show notes, we're going to have resources for the listeners. And I'm assuming some of this stuff you have available resources for people and, and different things that we can put on there, websites, different uh, PDFs, different things that they would be able to do it. Obviously, if there's a train the trainer thing, they're going to be do- be able to be trained in that training, but to be able to understand these things, I'd, I'd you know love to be able to put some of that stuff on there for the listeners. Yeah, and, and that's actually uh, one of our bullseyes is we we really believe that God's given us these resources that are not ours to have. So we will share anything we have, and actually we're even invite people to take what we have, take our logo off it, put theirs on it, and use it. Wow. And so the trauma competent care training we require them to have to go with, gone through the training, mm-hmm, of course, because there, there's some there's some credibility and accountability we want with that. Yep, just in quality. But really, to be honest with you, even something as small as a role description for a caregiver or a director of a site, you know, please we'll share it. So we'll we'll give you the link for that, and we have a full time 
couple of people on staff that actually manage those resources for us. And that is one of the things that, you know, for the listeners that usually you don't know the Guckenbergers, it's one of the things I've really admired about Back to Back is just the collaborative nature of the organization. It's something Todd and I have talked about on a couple of occasions. Um, Todd, I'd love to you to speak to that, just the, the need for more collaboration, cooperation, and seeing ourselves as companions, not competitors. And I know that we've talked about that. I'd love to hear it from your, from your mouth. Yeah, and just a simple example, really, uh, we just did the trauma-competent care training in Kenya. And with that trauma-competent care training, it directly impacted a handful of caregivers, primary caregivers and, and directors of, of children's homes that care for kids. Well, that training impacted 8,000 children indirectly. Mm. Well, to us, we don't work in Kenya. Right. We, don't, we, we work on the other side of Africa hmm. in one little country called Nigeria, which is you know, we work in one little city in Nigeria. So, but, so we don't have a vested interest in Kenya. What we have a vested interest in is orphans and vulnerable children and vulnerable families. So what we're dogmatic about is these are kingdom resources. We want to share them with many people as possible. We're not in competition. If you help orphans in some capacity or a vulnerable child in some capacity, it's a win for us. Right. So, you know, we're not looking at, we're not trying to franchise, you know, our industry. We're trying to say, Hey, you do this because we don't have the margin, the human capability to do it. And that's a win for the orphan. Right. Absolutely. No, and that's the reality of all this. Even if you had the best product, so to speak, in the world that could take care of everything, there's no way you could possibly do it because the the issues are so large and so multifaceted and so different everywhere they are. And, and on that note, how many countries are you working in? We work in six different locations. Uh, we work in three places in Mexico, Monterey, Monterey Cancun, and Mazatlan, uh, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, which is our newest site, uh, Joss, Nigeria, and then India. Okay. And then we're looking to launch into a couple other countries. Uh, really, it's mostly through relationship. But um, And then one thing I want to add about the, the resources and sharing is we also are learners. So we're, we're desperate to learn from other people. Some of our best learning has been from other orphan care organizations. And what I love and, and they have taught me is, is by being open-handed, it's made me more open-handed. And so we, you know, if somebody like we stole, quote unquote, our the first partnership agreement from Vision Trust. Uh, they, yeah. I said, hey, how do you do that, Matt? He's the director there yep. or the president there. And I said, hey, he said, here, let me share it with you. And so we adapted it to us. And it was just a trajectory that God put us on. Well, that's fantastic. And, and one of the things I want to go back to real quick on the different countries you work in, uh, you know, I'd imagine that what you're doing in each of those countries looks exactly the same, right? No. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we, we would say that there is a, there's a core of what we do and, and some of the how changes depending on the culture. We're not, right. we're not going to, we can't, we're not going to change a culture, nor do we want to. We just want to impact orphans lives. Yeah. For those of you who can't tell that was sarcasm in my question. So, <laughs> um, no, and I think that's so important that the, the collaboration is so critical as you said, for so many reasons. And one, I think, is because we need to understand each other. We need to be constant learners, like you said. That's another thing that definitely respect about you and, and the ministry is that I can tell that in what you do. It's constantly learning, and, and that's what we hope to be able to help with um, on this is to be able to learn from each other. So um, on that note, I know there's a lot of people out there. I mean, you talk about working with children's homes or orphanages, depending on what term we're using, residential care. There's a bunch of institutions. We could call them different things. And I know there's a, there is a, and you and I both know being in the, in the movement and, and involved with it for the last few years, there's a, there's been a large backlash against orphanages over the last few years and people saying we should shut them down. We should, you know, deinstitutionalization needs to be the big push. Um, 
you know, how would you respond to those critics who are saying we should shut down the orphanages, not help them to stay open and get better? Yeah, and I, I think that's a great question and, and something we have actually pushed against and for um, in a lot of ways, which is, is I think, uh, part of our learning curve. And so I heard a great quote. I, don't, I forget who said it, so um, I don't think it's necessarily noteworthy who, but they said, whenever the pendulum swings from one side to the other, there's only one time it's in balance and it's once in motion to go to the other side. And mm. so I think that describes some of the orphan care movement is that there's this bandwagon mentality, uh, pro or against, or, Hey, we got to do this. And, and I think those are great things, but you know, six, seven, eight years ago it was let's build orphanages and let's really take care of kids and raise money for buildings. And, and those things in itself weren't bad. But I think at the time, orphan care community wasn't asking questions, is this best? Or, you know, when we have 40 kids or 20 kids in a dorm, maybe some bad things might happen. Or maybe it's, they're not getting the individual care that would help them heal from that trauma. Or would we even know about trauma? So then the pendulum swang, you know, swung from the, the one side of pro-orphanage to the other side, which was in, anti-institution, which then, then all the orphanages or these thousands of kids in some countries who are cared for, whether they're government orphanages or private orphanages, and maybe the only way that they're cared for at all is an institution. And so then you're looking at them, go, looking at the mirror going, well, what are we going to do? You're going to put all the kids on the street? So we have wrestled with it. I think the pro of saying anti-institution is we ask the right questions and we say, Okay, so in our world, we don't actually even we don't even say spectrum of care from from worst to best. Mm -hmm. What we say is alternatives of care. So we're going to say, Phil, you're an orphan. Phil, what's the best way to take care of you? What are the what Mm. the resources we have? What resources can we get? What's the best quality? What who can we have in your life to influence and invest in you and mentor you and disciple you? Uh, All those things factor in, and then that's the best alternative for you rather than. Well, he's in an orphanage. He's he's not going to end up to be anything. You know, we, we just right. can't assume that. We have to individualize it, and and it, and it's kind of been my pet peeve. I, on, our, on our staff, I make everybody use the word alternative. I really push for that because it is it isn't good if someone's in a mental institution or in a in a sane asylum and that's they're not supposed to be there because that's by default where somebody put them. Clearly, that's worse than being reintegrated and reunified with your family. However, in that mean of, of difference, there's some countries that don't have the resources. And so right. how can we walk in and say, we're better than them and you have to do this? Well, if you want to help them do that, that's great. Get in the trenches with them and start shoveling. And then you work with them to do it instead of, hey, you're broken. Sorry, we'll see you later when you're better. Right. That's so good. That's so rich. Uh and I think that what you hit on is so critical to this, that it's a case by case. It's a child by child. It's messy. It's hard. It's not something that we can just come up with a pat answer, a silver bullet that's going to take care of every kid in the world and, and be the answer. And, and that's, I really like that the alternatives rather than spectrum or continuum or something that implies a better or a, a sliding scale, so to speak, because, you know, there's some kids who quite frankly, just don't belong in a family today. That may change in a year, but it may be they're so abused or so hurt for whatever reason or child soldiers, for instance, if they were forced to kill their mom and dad, probably not the best situation for them. Those those are realities in our world today to just say there's a pat answer is really naive and I think ignorant of a lot of stuff out there. Well, to that point, you know, a lot of a lot of kids we serve 
we started the very first foster care legal foster care program in in Monterey, Mexico, in the nation, and we worked really closely with the local government, and we were dogmatic about okay, let's make sure we have some great standards. We help them legalize it. We are now a certified agent that we can help facilitate foster care. We're still jumping through hoops to make that relationship strong with the government. It was very very successful. But but even as highly trained as we did in the foster care process to help those families become foster care parents, if we took some students that were in our HOPE program and put those students into those foster care families individually, Mm -hmm. those families would implode. Mm. And so it's not that we're working with like the horrible, worst, screwed up kids. It's just that. It takes an amount of training and resourcing and, and, and uh, somebody who is, is always hopeful and always in the long haul. And I heard a great um, – I heard a – I, I, I'm a learner, so everything that's said goes through my filter of orphan care. And I was watching a TV show, and it was a medicine show. And at the end of the show, the guy said a quote about the Hippocrat- Hippocratic Oath, which doctors take and, or all medical physicians, yep. medical professions take. And he said something along the lines of – you know, we at all costs save lives, but then it says remembering that that medicine is a science and an art, and I think that describes what we have to do with each child. It's a mm. science and an art. There is no scientific. Here's the formula. Here's the boxes and the, everything it's got to fall into. Here's here it is. No, but you have to fold in the art. The art is what's best for the child. Yeah, that's so true. So here's a question for you. So what, what, what advice would you give to someone who called you up today and said, Hey, we're, we're looking to start a new orphanage in Mexico. Hmm. Um, what advice do you have for me? One is I beg them, beg them to learn from other people. Um, because you, you, they've got to, they've got to learn what's the best way to care for kids. The other thing, as I say, I say, before you build an orphanage, quote unquote, meaning walls and institution with bunks of 20 kids in a room, I say, really look at what is best for each individual child and figure out if you can make it as family based as possible. When we were talking about the institutionalization, we've worked towards deinstitutionalizing every place we serve. So that is proven. It doesn't mean that institutions can't exist. It's just if we can make them as family based as possible, do it. And so I just the one thing I would say is I beg them to educate themselves. The, the second thing I'd say is you have to combine the organizational skills and the ministry skills because most people are doing this because they've got a great heart, but that's not enough. If they don't add a foundation organizationally, and, and what I mean by that is there's layers of that, but probably the most basic thing is, is you have to have accountability and accountability financially, accountability organizationally. Otherwise you will become the notorious mom and pop organization that will implode. Absolutely. That's good stuff. All right. So in 2010, I um, I was reading about the family preservation program that you guys started up in Cancun, uh, Mexico. So what does Mm -hmm. that ministry look like and what caused you to start it? It's it's actually um, in the last year has become just a huge blessing. So what we did is uh, at the time we're in Cancun, Mexico, we still are. Our staff were working with a small children's home and they've started to discover that some of the kids could actually be reunified with their families. And so we started this families, uh, children and family in transition program and realized that, you know, hey, as a result of this, these kids can move back to their homes, but these families need a lot of resources, not financial resources, but mentoring, coaching, accountability, um, encouragement, a community. And so we started working in a, in a small community in, in a similar capacity, not where we unified kids, 
but in, in a community outreach capacity where we started working with families, resourcing them, doing job skill training, working with literacy program with kids in the community. And what it did is, and it fed into is a program we call Strong Families. So we love the word family preservation, but there's some other interpretations of that. So it's sure. not that we're opposed to it. It's just that Strong Families to us is the best description we can describe where we say, we're in it for the long haul with the family. We actually have a partnership that we sign with that family. Usually it's a single mom. Very few of the families have a, a you know mother and a father or husband and wife. Um, some of them are just the father, but it's mostly single moms. So just to give you an example, a couple weeks ago we went down. We have we had about eight or nine uh, sewing machines. Uh, the community center is in full operation, and they trained a handful of women to sew, which – Sewing in itself is a great skill, but what it also did is it gave a camaraderie amongst the women in the community, you know, sitting next, sitting in sewing machines, talking, laughing, commuting, and gave them a trust within their own community. So then not only are they, we encouraging them to keep their families together and to build into them with skills, self-esteem, et cetera, but it also is then each other building into each other. So it's really a, a amazing thing that happens. And, and once people engage, I've got this great phrase we use with some of our onboarding staff, but it's needy people don't feel needed. And I think that's poverty in some ways mm. where, where if, if I don't have nothing to contribute, I just basically, I become high maintenance and I become, you know, annoying or whatever that might be. Right. But as soon as I can contribute to something, I'm no longer needy. I'm part of contributing to what the overall common good is. And so happens with onboarding staff a lot in our world where they come on staff, they don't speak the language, or maybe they do speak the language, but they don't know what we do. And so then they get kind of anxious and like, I want to contribute. And then as soon as they're engaged in something that they're good at and they're contributing towards, it disappears. But the same thing is true in poverty. And, you know, you, you, you're giving away or transferring or enabling or encouraging dignity. Absolutely. Man, this is good stuff. Uh, I, I'm excited to see how that's going to continue to flourish and continue to help people to be able to flourish. And like you said, you know, we're created to do amazing things. Each of us has uniqueness in us. And to think about people out there who don't feel that and don't know that and to be able to imagine the joy you get in seeing others seeing the joy or seeing joy on their face of just realizing I'm created to do something for others. This is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, And the strong families really, it comes, it goes so well um, because it preserves families. It's preventative in orphan care in a lot of ways, which I love. And you can get them on the front end. It's great. Not, it, once again, it's just one alternative. Right. It's not the only one, but it's the one that works in this partic- particular community. It's like, I don't know if you've ever done an eye clinic with eyeglasses, but you see these 75-year-old men who come in and they get their vision checked probably for the first time in their life. And it's you know legally blind and they've given a pair of eyeglasses and then they see for the first time. Yeah. And to see their face is just, you can't put words to describe that. And I imagine it's a similar feeling for you when you're seeing this in these families, when they can see like, wow, we can do this. Yeah. So, okay. So now we're going to go, what's the, we kind of labeled the speed round here um, to finish up. And uh, the first question I have for you is what are the two biggest issues that you feel the orphan care movement is facing today? That you'd like to hear discussed uh, it deeper on the on this podcast. I I think probably the biggest issue I would say is I'll even say both of them in the same one. Our greatest challenge is when we partner with a national run organization, Children's Home, Orphanage, Community Leader, not the person itself, mm-hmm. but then agreeing with that person on standards of care. 
there, because at that time, at some point, we we butt heads or 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 have a collision on how is it best to take care of this child, and that's when the deinstitution the institutionalization conversation comes up. That's when trauma competent care comes up. That's when the adage, old age adage of, well, we'll just love them and they'll be healed. And, and that's a great thing. And I believe that Jesus can heal anything and anyone, right. but there's got to be some intentionality behind it and some purpose. And so I think that's the greatest challenge, not just the standards, but the, the ongoing continued relationship to help work through with the national church, the national organizations in the standards of care and not saying that we haven't figured out, like we're not, right. we're, we're not, we're not perfect, but we've got to have the conversation and we've got to learn together. So both learning together here and the people thinking at the 30,000 foot high, high level, what are the standards? What is best practice, so to speak? But then the second, the other side of that coin is how can we communicate that to people who have never heard of it and probably are, are having an extremely difficult time doing what they're already doing, which is different. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, if, and I, I always say it this way: if 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 you put your hand in front of your face, that is the needs that those directors, those leaders, all have, and they're mm-hmm. they're literally touching their nose with their needs. So they're so far in it that we just need them to push that hand down a little bit and look over the top of the tip of their fingers to yeah. see where they could go. And and it's and, and it's it's a challenge because they're 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 in it, they're working it. And to be honest with you, none of them are ill willed. Not not right. one person, not even not even us with our intentions. I think is that what happens is we we get so dogmatic or so passionate that we and so fixated on what we're trying to accomplish that we're we got to stop and make sure we learn and we got to yeah. stop and make sure that we we work together and share the resources. One other thing on that is that we've learned and we we learned at a conference a couple of years ago. It was a missions conference, but we use what we call the Galatians six principle. Are you familiar with Galatians six two, where it talks about the difference between your God says each of us should help others with their with their burden but each one should carry his or her own load mm. and biblically speaking the load is the equivalent of a roman soldier's backpack right. 30 pounds if i care like my kids alone if i carried their backpacks every day and moved them around the house they would stop doing it themselves mm-hmm. and so but the load is excessive it's this boulder running down a hillside no one can stop that by themselves they'll get pummeled and so we use the burden and load conversation a lot when we're working with anybody, even the kids we serve. Hey, is this a burden or load when the student says, I can't do my homework, you know? Right. But, and we fail at it. I mean, it's, it's a really fine line because we all have a tendency to overhelp. But the reality is, is that we've got to have that conversation when we're dealing with partnerships. Definitely. All right. And as a learner, I imagine this will be a really hard question for you to answer. Um, but what have you read or listened to in the past? I'll give it couple months knowing that you're a learner that has most impacted your thinking and the issues surrounding orphan care? Uh, great question. Uh, I would say everything that I learned goes through the filter of orphan care. So it's, <laughs> it's indirect or direct. Yes. Um, I would say, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a podcast listener. I'm a, I'm a organizational principles and business listener. So, you know, a couple, I mean, I just started listening to Craig Groeschel's podcast, which is on leadership. I love that. Love Andy Stanley's. Uh, I love the entree leadership. Entree leadership is great because it's really about business, but it's, it really applies to all things we do. And so I'm just constantly sucking small bits of information from different people. Uh, like for example, I was talking to a missionary from South Africa and they, if I can, so basically they, they, 
have macadamia trees and they ordered 2,500 saplings of macadamia trees. And she was telling the story about how they sold bunches of macadamians and macadamia nuts and then they made this money and, but they're going to plant these saplings. And I said, wait, what's the difference between a sapling and a seedling? And she basically went on to explain that sapling is they take the branch of a good, of a tree that had good fruit and a branch of a tree that had good roots and they graft them together and they put scotch tape on them, let them grow roots in water and they plant it. And then that produces a perfect macadamia tree. And I thought, that's a that's what I learned. That's how I see us. So I thought in our world we've got to have a foundation. We got to have good roots, tons of fruit. We're going to have, and we could have initially. We could have fruit doing it, but if we don't put some roots down, so think spiritually, scripture, mm-hmm. and and evangelism, and let's think organizationally. You got to have programs that are written and process proven, but you're going to have fruit from those programs if you fall through with them. So. That's great. Good roots, good fruit. So sorry, yeah, absolutely. I could, no, that's I know you could. I know you could. And we'll have these uh, podcasts. And you know, this is a somewhat of a selfish, you know, question for me to ask too, because I like to get new podcasts and new books to read. So um, excited to check uh, the Craig Show one in particular. I haven't I haven't heard that yet, so I'm excited. Um, Entree Leadership is one of my favorites as well. We'll put these links on the uh, show notes as well. And then one last book. Uh, sorry to throw it no, in there. That's okay. A book called The Choice. Uh, ECFA actually put it out. I think they published it, but it is probably the best book for Christian leaders I've ever read because it talks about clearly understanding what God's called you to do and then just being obedient to do it. So in the end of the year, uh, after you've worked hard to accomplish what God's called you to do, you're, you're only, you're only evaluated on your obedience and your faithfulness, not on what the outcomes are because that's what's God. Right. That's great. All right. The last question, uh, what one person has most impacted your thinking? on how to best love and care for orphan and vulnerable children this this is a hard one i mean clearly uh jesus uh but uh if i had to say a real human person that's i mean real i think jesus was real human but he's not fully god at the same time yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) i would say my wife you know uh we we are like-minded but you cut her open she bleeds the orphan Mm. and it is it is evident in her the way she lives literally last night she was speaking at a at a place um here in town uh just across the river into Kentucky and she was speaking for 3 hours and she got a call from a family that just adopted three girls who have had extreme tr- struggle in adapting and the middle one the police were there and and the the middle one she just said I'll just come get her and she she took her with her to the hmm. speaking engagement well I'd be like, oh, it's too much. I can't handle it. I got to speak and I'm preparing for that. But she bleeds the orphan. So she invests, invests, invests. And so I would say she's had the greatest influence on me. Um, she makes me better. And I'm not just saying that because she'll hear this hopefully. <laughs> Although that won't hurt. Um, well, thanks so much, Todd. This has been awesome. I've, I've very much enjoyed this and I look forward to continuing our conversation in the future. Thanks. Have a great day. I appreciate, I appreciate it. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, Todd was able to share with us and, and really made me think deeply about a lot of these issues from the way that they really uniquely plan for each child what's best for them to the way that they go into an orphanage and say, you know, the realities of today are such that we're not able to just come in and put into place everything that we would put in everywhere else, but they say, this is a unique place as well. And they say, we need to make this orphanage into a place that can mirror and model family as much as possible to the extent we can put kids into families. We'll do that as well. 
But right now we need to say, what is the best for this individual place at this specific time? And that's just so good and so rich. And I think the same thing they do with missions trips and a bunch of other things that they're doing. So I want to hear from every one of you guys out there as well on ways that you're able to do this stuff, the ways you've encountered these missions trips and, and found really good ways to engage people while do, while helping and not hurting, as we've heard the conversation go to that so much lately. So Kelly, I want, I want to hear from you right now. Like, what did you uh, really hear in there that stuck out to you as something that Back to Back's doing, that Todd was talking about um, in your, uh, from your perspective and where you are today? I love how they are basing so much of what they do on research and looking at uh, the brain development of a, of a child who has experienced trauma and then tailoring a specific plan to how they're going to help bring about healing for that child, how they're going to assist them and encourage them and walk with them uh, through even the things like going to school and what does that look like. And so I think especially as a as an adoptive mom, as a, as a social worker, that is just great for parents anywhere, if, if, even if you don't have an adopted child or a child who has experienced trauma, to just look at the child holistically and say, how can we help them in you know the spiritual realm? How can we help them in, in their journey of education? And so I think the fact that they are doing that um, in an orphanage um, with children who have experienced just a difficult life, I think is fabulous. Well, that's just such important things in all this work that we're doing is to see each child as an individual unique child that has amazing gifts and talents that are their own and that we can develop. And I just want to thank you again uh, today for, for your download. I want to thank you for joining us, for engaging the conversation. And I invite you to come back to our next episode, which has Chris Marlowe. I was able to sit down with him and talk about his new book, Doing Good is Simple. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.